Our scripture reader uh, is uh, Dan Wanshura, and he's going to be reading Psalm 90. If you please stand in honor of God's word. Listen as I read. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 90. This is the last Sunday in the Psalms of the People series. And I don't know about you, but this has been a really enjoyable, fruitful time for my own life. Uh, not just to get a sense of what God has for us in the Psalms, but, but to hear how it's impacted you as a family, as a body. Uh, and, and this week, Psalm 90, uh, it was both my choice, it's something that I've wanted to, to look into for a long time. We also had someone uh, put a submission in for this. Uh, and then I remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who doesn't go to Sojourn. We were at That's a Pizza, eating not pizza, but Caesar salad. And we were talking about Psalm 90. And he was saying, kind of in the best sense of the word, he was just stuck in it. Uh, he kept coming back to it and how rich it was in his life. Uh, one of the common denominators in all three of those uh, points of influence were uh, they had heard the Shane and Shane song, were intrigued by it, and had questions about the context, had questions about how to apply the psalm. And so my journey with the psalm, I, I, th I think if I were to say where I was before, I would have said, this is a beautiful psalm, poetry is amazing. Um, and, and yet, for whatever reason, I, I don't think I had really engaged with the psalm too much. Uh, it just felt like a beautiful piece of poetry. And so over this, this week and the past couple weeks, as I've been diving into it, um, I've found that this psalm uh, speaks so much, and I shouldn't be surprised by this, but it actually speaks so much uh, to the stuff that we're going through, that I'm going through. So just consider these kinds of scenarios. Maybe uh, you're wondering where God is at. Maybe there's clear times in your life where it's like, he was there, I saw his power, I saw his love on display, and now I'm wondering, I don't see it. 
Maybe you're longing for a sense of stability in your world, uh, but you don't have it. Maybe you're feeling rootless, unsettled instead. Maybe you would characterize your life in general, or maybe your life more specifically, as something akin to wandering in the wilderness. You just feel like you're aimless, you're drifting. Maybe you are grappling with your own mortality. As much as we try to shove death to the side, maybe it just hasn't allowed you to do that recently. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel powerless to sort of pull yourself up into a place of positivity and hope and joy. You know you should be able to get there, but you're just scraping the bottom of the barrel. If any of that describes you, then, then just rest assured, Psalm 90 is for you. Psalm 90 is for you, and I'm excited to dive into it today with you. Uh, before we do that, I want to set the stage of where Psalm 90 uh, fits, first of all, in, in the Psalter. So uh, maybe as you've read uh, the Psalms before, you've seen at various Psalms there, there will be book titles. So book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And, and the Psalms have been uh, organized uh, into these five books. And one of my uh, aha moments this week was uh, that I realized that Psalm 90 is preceded by Psalm 89. It's crazy. It's crazy. Here's why that matters. Uh, because Psalm 89 ends book three of the Psalms. Psalm 90 begins book four. And so if you think of the Psalms sort of as a Netflix series, there's five seasons to this. And Psalm 89 is like the season finale of season three. Psalm 89 is at a place in Israelites' history uh, where we think that the nation has fallen. We think Jerusalem has fallen. We think uh, they have been invaded by the Babylonians. And so Psalm 89 is intense uh, in where the psalmist is at. And he's wrestling, uh, yes, he's wrestling with the destruction of the city, but more than that, he's wrestling with the question, God, where are you at? And so it ends, uh, Psalm 89, with this question that you can just imagine being flung into the dark Psalm 89 says this to end it. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Lord, as I survey the stuff around us, where is your steadfast love that we saw a long time ago? Where is it now? And so again, if you're watching this as a Netflix series, you, you finish this episode and it's a cliffhanger. There's no answer. It's just darkness. So thankfully... Uh, all seasons are there. You can binge watch it. So yeah, take a bathroom break, get a snack. You come back, you press play on the first episode. It's entitled Psalm 90. And then the subtitle comes up. It says, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, Moses, we're, 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 our times are jumbled up. Moses lived like a thousand years before this. What's going on? You're like, oh, it's a flashback. He's doing a flashback. Okay, so the psalmist, in some sense here, as he is grappling with, as he let that question of where is the Lord's love of old, where he lets that sit out there, it's in a sense he is saying to us, we need to go back a thousand years in time and see how they grappled with this question. Okay, so we come back uh, to Moses. This earlier time in the Israelite history where Moses has written this prayer. And Moses, uh, we're all familiar with Moses to some degree, He's a man of God that God raised up to lead the Israelites 
He was instrumental in leading them out of slavery in Egypt. He led his people to Mount Sinai and he met God there. Moses is the guy who interceded on behalf of his people when, when they were making this golden calf. God wanted to destroy them. Moses interceded for them. Moses was known as the friend of God. He met him face to face. Moses is the guy who led his people through the wilderness up to the point of entering the promised land only to see the people grumble and complain, choose not to believe God. Moses saw his people as they reeled from the news that they would all die off before entering the promised land. Moses walked with his people for decades as they wandered in the wilderness, dying off one by one. Moses lived long enough to see his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron die. He outlasted them. Moses himself sinned and was told that he'd die before entering the promised land. Most likely it was around that point that Moses wrote Psalm 90. A man deeply committed to God. A man facing death all around him. A man disquieted by the wilderness that he's been stuck in. A man grappling with the fact that he himself will not live to see anything else but wilderness. He longs for home, but he is stuck in the wilderness. So as we work through Psalm 90 today, we're going to follow his journey. We're going to see how his experience begins to answer Psalm 89's question. God, where is your love of old? We're going to hopefully find that Psalm 90 gives us language for our wilderness experiences of 2021. So Moses then begins Psalm 90 with this statement of confidence. We read it at the beginning of our service. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. God, you have been our home. This is what Moses is saying. And as you hear that idea, God, you have been our home. What images or uh, pictures or feelings does that word home bring up in you? Are you homesick? Maybe you're just sick of home. Maybe home for you has been a series of houses and locations just moving from one to the next. So you don't really have a deep sense of home. Or maybe you've got the family home in mind that's been there for generations. Maybe life at home for you is deeply comforting. Maybe it's been deeply painful. Maybe it's a mixture of both. Regardless of our experiences, though, the, the longing for home, sort of in, a, in an existential way, it is hardwired into us. And Moses is saying here at the beginning of this psalm, this, this community lament, he's saying God has been home to us. And I think he's pointing to three different needs that are met in having a perfect home. Number one, a home is meant to be a place of belonging. A house is just a building. A home is where your people are at. It's where you're known. It's where you're welcomed in. It's where you belong. At home, you use the possessive pronoun. It's my son, my daughter, our dad, our mom. Out there, you tend to forget who you are. But in here, at home, you remember. Home is a place of belonging. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. But a home is meant to be a place of safety as well. 
Dwelling place can be translated as refuge. Home is where we're protected. It's where we can let down our guard. It's where we can rest without fear. Out there, it's dangerous. Out there, as Russell Moore likes to say, there are things that want to eat you up. But in here, at home, it's safe. It's safe to be yourself. It's safe to let people in. It's safe to trust. Lord, you have been our refuge. Thirdly, a home is meant to be a place of stability. And just think of our world. It seems to be changing all the time. It's shifting all the time. Home stabilizes us. Home provides steady ground. Home is a place where we can recover from the vertigo of a spinning world. It's a place we can count on in a world where nothing seems to last. And Moses here prays, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. And before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so as homes go, this one was around before everything else and it will be there long past everything else. It'll last. And just think of Moses again. He's the one praying this. Consider maybe what is uh, under the surface of this, this statement of confidence. Moses and his people, from a practical perspective, are homeless. I mean, the beginning of the nation of Israel began with Abraham, who has said, leave your home. Go to a place that I'll tell you to go to. The nation of Israel then lived in a place that was not their home, Egypt. They were sojourners there, and then they were slaves there. And then they left that country with the promise of a home, but they've been wandering in the wilderness for decades. And so Moses is grappling with this reality, and it's as, it's as if he's saying, God, even though we have had no earthly home, you have been our home. And as we think about sort of the complexities of home for us. Our earthly homes never match up to what I just described. And at best, they give us this uneven and inconsistent taste of it. And at worst, they do deep damage by betraying and breaking their promises. But the point is this. You were created to find your home in God. You were created to belong to God. You were created to rest in God. You were created to last, to endure in God. God's been our home. Um, but as I picture Moses praying this prayer, his, his eyes have kind of gone out of focus as he's considering the past. God has been our home, our dwelling place. But they slowly come into focus as he looks around him. He sees his people, this older generation who are dwindling away. And he sees the landscape, all rocks and dust. And he begins to describe what he sees, begins to interpret what he sees. God, you have been our dwelling place, but we're in the wilderness now. We're in the wilderness. And this is not a, a backpacking trip out into the wilderness for a couple days and then back into the comforts of civilization. This, is, this also isn't a trip for Moses and the older generation, at least. Sort of a hard journey through the wilderness, but you have the, the hope of the promised land at the end. No, for Moses 
At this point, for the older generation, this is wilderness as the destination. This is wilderness as being stuck there. It's wilderness as being imprisoned there. It's wilderness as consequence. And maybe as you read through this, you, you could say that Moses might be in danger of being pessimistic, of being hopeless. But I don't think that's fully what's going on here. I think Moses, as he has affirmed God as home, he is now able by contrast to look around and be realistic about what he sees. And Moses, I believe, sees three different realities that characterize the wilderness. The wilderness, first of all, is a place overshadowed by death. Moses sees in the, de- the dust in front of him, he sees a reminder of where we're all headed. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Death is where we're headed. And that death can come suddenly. Look at verse 5. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Or that death can come slowly. Continue in verse 5. Like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Either way, whether it's like a flood or like withering grass, death is coming. And so life in the wilderness is overshadowed by death. Just consider the grass. Even as that grass flourishes and is renewed and it looks green and beautiful, with certainty we know that evening is coming where it will fade and wither. And so the reality of death is ever-present in the wilderness. And Moses sees it. And it's like he grabs that thread and he keeps pulling to see where, where that's coming from. Why is that the case? And so he connects death to this deeper reality. Yes, the wilderness is overshadowed by death, but that's because the wilderness is affected by God's wrath, by his anger. Why do we die? According to Moses, it's because of God's anger. Look at verse 7. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. Why is God angry? According to Moses, because of sin. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And I can just imagine Moses as he is reflecting on the wilderness that he is in. And he's thinking, why are we here? Why are we stuck here? And all the memories come flooding back, right? The idolatry, the unbelief, the disobedience, the complaining, his own anger that was a sinful, sinfully displayed. And it's clear to him, oh yeah, death is here because sin. And God's angry at it. But I think Moses is also thinking beyond his present circumstances. So he uses this imagery of dust. And that immediately draws us to Genesis 3, where we have Adam and Eve who were at home in, their, in the Garden of Eden. They doubt God's words. They disobey his command. God confronts them and he curses them. Because you have sinned, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so Moses 
is both reflecting on the sin of his life and his people's life, but then in a broader sense, he's seeing it as part of God's judgment on the whole earth as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. So life now for everybody, all the way back to Adam and Eve, all the way up to us, it is now in some sense a wilderness, overshadowed by death under God's righteous anger. And we could do a whole sermon on God's wrath. I'm sure there have been some good ones out there. We need to talk about why we struggle so much with the concept. We need to talk about why it's good news. But for now, let's, let's stick with this, that God is angry because he loves. He loves us. He loves his world so much that he is angry at its vandalism, at our ruin due to sin. And that anger, it moves him to action. It moves him to the work of restoring shalom, of making things right. And in this sense, wouldn't you rather have an angry God than an apathetic God? Than a God who doesn't care enough to see what's wrong and then actually get up and do something about it? No, the God of the Bible loves us enough to get angry and get to work. But still, even if we can grasp what that means and how it's good news, we are still under the effects of life in the wilderness. Death is here and God is angry. And we know God's anger is pure. We know he's aimed towards restoration. We just don't know how to quantify it. We just don't know how to qualify it. We don't know what connections to make. We don't know how always to respond. And Moses is there too. Look at verse 11. He says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And just to be frank about it, living under a cloud of death and anger just feels plain miserable. And this is the third reality that Moses describes. The wilderness is overshadowed by death. It's under God's wrath. Consequently, it is a place marked by misery and meaningless. Verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. So Moses, looking at life, and he's saying it's here, and then it's gone. It's hard to find meaning in that. Well, maybe you zoom in on the quality of life, and it's short, but maybe it's really good. Well, according to Moses, as he looks at life, it's marked by toil and trouble. Well, maybe it's going to end well. Well, again, Moses, as he looks at life, doesn't end with a fanfare, it doesn't end with a beautiful song, but it ends with a sigh. Uh, other translations are a little starker with it. They use the word groan or moan. I think it's good for us just to sit with that for a second. Are you at all at the place as you grapple with the weight of life in the wilderness where you would describe your life in any way close to a moan? Do you know someone who might be there? These are the realities that Moses sees in the wilderness. Sin, misery, and death. 
and, and we need to face them in some way. But when we try to face them, we discover that we can't hold them in front of us for long. We can't make sense of them. We're overwhelmed by them. So we need help. We need wisdom to face the realities of the wilderness. And this is where Moses gets to in verse 12, where he says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And I think the implication in Moses' prayer is that we don't know how to number our days very well. We don't want to number our days. We don't want to face these realities head on. We like to deny it. And this is something that our culture, um, we've both built it this way and then it enables us to deny our mortality. One of the books that I, I was reading this past week was by J. Todd Billings and it's called The End of the Christian Life. Uh, in that book, as he's talking about and dealing with mortality, he interacts with another guy, okay? This guy named Ernest Becker. He's a social scientist who wrote a book called The Denial of Death. Okay, you don't have to remember all those. But I want to read a paragraph from J. Todd Billings' book as he interacts with Ernest Becker's book. It'll be on the screen. The denial of death, Becker argues, is an engine that is central to human culture itself. It's an omnipresent aspect of our moment-to-moment -moment lives. And yet much of its power lies in its repression, in its hiddenness. Still, the hidden fear, it goes to work. And what emerges is a hyper-anxious animal who constantly invents reasons for anxiety, even where there are none. In other words, try to shove death to the side, try to get it out of your view. It's just going to go deeper and it's going to still work on you. Billings goes on to say, in bold contrast to Sigmund Freud, who postulated that frustrated sexual desire is the root cause of widespread neurosis, Becker argues that neurosis emerges from a deep discomfort with our dusty connections to the earth. What a phrase. Deep discomfort with our dusty connections to the earth. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Moses is at this place. God, would you teach us? Would you teach us to number our days? Would you teach us to face our mortality that we may get a heart of wisdom? To which we ask the question, how do we do that? It starts with three honest admissions. As Moses is looking at the wilderness, as he sees these realities, these three admissions. Number one, I can't outrun death. Number two, I can't fix the problem of sin. Number three, I can't provide meaning for this suffering. No more denying the wilderness. No more trying to escape the wilderness. No more trying to dominate it or placate it or carve out our own protective bubble in it. No more creating tribes in it. No, a humble confession of need, of our inability to get out of it, of our stuckness. And from that place, from that place of inability, from that place of smallness and stuckness, a portal to life before God opens. 
And this is where God looks at us and he agrees with us. And he says, yes, you can't. You can't outrun death. You can't fix the problem of sin. You can't provide meaning for this suffering. But I can. I can. So Moses comes to this place of smallness, of inability, of recognition that he is far from home in the wilderness and he has no way out. He is stuck. And so he prays to the God who is big, who is able, who is not stuck, who is our dwelling place. God, if I can't make it home, would you bring home to me? Listen to what he prays for, verse 13. Return, O Lord. How long? We're stuck here, God. Would you come to us? Have pity on your servants. God, you're right to be angry. Please show mercy. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, I don't have what it takes for another day, another moment in the wilderness. Nourish me. This prayer continues. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen evil. God, all I see is misery. Lots of it. So would you give me gladness? Not just a little bit, but the same amount of misery, I want the same amount of gladness. He prays, continue, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, we don't see you now. We need to see you. Would you allow us to see you? Not just me, but my kids, my cousins, my nieces, nephews. We all want to see you. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God, we are just dust. Would you take our lives and our labor and would you make them last beyond the wilderness? And I imagine Moses finishing his prayer, kind of dusting himself off. He slowly gets up, takes a breath, and he gets about the work of his hands that day as he waits in faith and he waits in hope for God to answer. And then you remember that group of Israelites around Psalm 89 who now have their own Psalter and who are praying Psalm 90 as well. And they finish up that prayer and I imagine an Israelite woman who is praying Psalm 90 in tears. She quietly then gets up to do the work of caring for her kids that day as she waits in faith for God to answer. And then, in the fullness of time, the Lord, our dwelling place, comes. He comes and he makes his home with us. He comes and he has pity on us. He comes and he satisfies us with his broken body and his shed blood. He comes and he was afflicted for us to have joy. He comes and we see his glory. He comes and through his finished work on the cross, he establishes us as his eternal works of grace. So friends, as we pray Psalm 90, we are praying it in the lineage all the way back to Moses, and yet we are praying it from a different vantage point. 
of those who are waiting for the Messiah to come. When we pray Psalm 90, we pray it through Jesus. There's an artist and an author named Makoto Fujimura. He wrote a book where he talks about uh, Lazarus. And And he wonders what kind of culture would develop if we lived like Lazarus after he was raised to life. If you don't know the story, Lazarus died, Jesus came, and he brought him to life. What would life be like if we lived like Lazarus after he was brought back from the dead by Jesus? This is what he says. Lazarus' culture begins by understanding that we can die in Christ every moment of our lives, but practice resurrection by being filled with the Holy Spirit, the giver of joy and hope, even in the face of the darkest despair. Just listen to this. Confidence in Christ is different from smiling through tough times. No, this confidence is a quiet surrender. God, we're stuck. But an unshakable hope that lies beneath all of our rubble. What poet Christian Wyman called his bright abyss. This confidence is a quiet surrender but an unshakable hope. Um, I'd like to put a picture up on the screen behind me. This is the front cover of our latest edition of our prayer project. There's a, there's a, there's a group called the Daily Prayer Project that we, we have prayer guides. They're actually out there available for you if you'd like one. Uh, this, this, this piece of art is by Brazilian artist Aline Brandt, and it's entitled Primavera, Spring. And this is how it describes it in the prayer guide. It says, Aline photographs human subjects in black and white. Then after printing each image, hand embroiders flowers over it, transforming the muted photo into something vibrant and even more alive. The woman in Primavera has a weary but hopeful expression, her eyes fixed on a light source that's out of the frame. After a long winter, her heart blossoms indicating renewal. I'm not sure what you see when you look at this. I see Psalm 90 reflected in this picture. I see Moses in the wilderness looking with faith for home to come to him. I see the Israelite woman looking in faith for home to come to her. I see us looking in faith for home to come to us. And as we continue looking by faith, wouldn't you know it, Flowers, echoes of the Garden of Eden. Flowers blossom out of the dust. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you pray with me? God, with Moses, we affirm reality that we were made to find our meaning, our belonging, our rest in you. And yet we also affirm with Moses that as we look around us, 
uh, as we look inside of us, uh, our lives sometimes feel like they're marked more by death and by suffering. God, with Moses, would you help us to focus on the light outside of the frame? Would you help us to walk by faith and not by sight? Would you put before our mind's eye, even now, the fact that, that, that you entered into our wilderness, you brought home to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so God, as, as we reflect on that, would you allow us to draw hope from that? Would you nourish us? Would you pour out your love upon us even as we continue to walk in this wilderness waiting for you to come bring your kingdom on earth fully as it is in heaven. Until that day, we look to you. We long for you. We're thankful for your work in our hearts. And we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.